You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Earlier this year, I spoke with Professor Scott Simon about his research on the indigenous peoples of Taiwan. He is a professor in the School of Sociological and Anthropological Studies and co-holder of the Research Chair in Taiwan Studies at the University of Ottawa. He's done research in Taiwan since 1996, spent an accumulated 10 years of residence in the country, and published three books about Taiwan. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Yeah, thank you very much for this. I'm glad we can do this. Great. Um, so how can uh, let's start with talking about how did you get interested in studying uh, the indigenous people of Taiwan? Yeah, I think that this actually goes back a long, long way. Um, as you know, the first time I went to Taiwan was in 1996 to do my PhD research. And back then, of course, I was uh, a much younger, but the whole field of anthropology was much younger. And I hadn't read much about the indigenous people at all. Um, I remember there was one book by a Burton Pasternak talking about uh, communities in the south of Taiwan. And he had this thesis that his hypothesis was that the communities that were more subject to Aboriginal attack in the Qing dynasty period uh, would be the ones who had a more of a self-defense organizations and therefore have stronger uh, temple organizations and stronger extra-familial organization. And he was comparing those to other communities that didn't, that weren't exposed to too much Aboriginal attack. So reading things like that made it seem as if these were people who existed a long time ago in the past, mm -hmm. and there was really nothing about contemporary indigenous people. But, you know, I got there in 1996, and that was a really a, a time in, in, in Taiwan's history when things were changing a lot. So in 1994 was the first time that they put the word indigenous people in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And then 1996 was the year that the Council of Indigenous Peoples was founded. Oh. So the previous, the previous generations of anthropologists coming to Taiwan just weren't really exposed to it and didn't write about it. Then in 1997, they changed the constitution. Instead of saying indigenous people, it said indigenous peoples have mm -hmm. economic, political, and social rights. Mm -hmm. And there were some demonstrations going on. And most importantly is that I started to meet people who told me they're indigenous. And so they started to take me to their villages in Hualien, Amis, uh, for a harvest festival. Mm -hmm. uh, I stayed for five years. And so I, I was, uh, in my third year, I was teaching in, in Wenzhou, in, in Kaohsiung. And one, mm -hmm. of my, uh, one of the night students was a woman a bit older than me, because it's for uh, adult education. Mm -hmm. And she invited me to her Lukai village in Taidong. And... And then I, when I moved to Taipei and I was working with women entrepreneurs for my research, I met some indigenous women entrepreneurs. And one of them, Yuli, she took me to Hualien, to her, to her village. And so it really exposed me to a different place. And I was really surprised because all of anthropology was having a study, Taiwan as an example of Chinese culture. But here were these other cultures and other languages and very much alive and felt much more like I was on a Pacific island, which mm. really Taiwan is. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me an entirely different perspective on Taiwan. 
And so after I got my job in Canada and I was requested to, I was, you know, it's part of our job to do research. It's not a hobby. It's our job to get grant money and do research. I applied for a grant to go back to Taiwan and do work on economic development in the Durugu indigenous villages mm-hmm. in Hualien and Nantau. And so I spent another 18 months doing that. And that really gave me a firm foundation for doing indigenous studies in Taiwan. Wow. I'm just curious, what even made you interested or brought you to Taiwan in 96? Well, you know, I, I did my undergraduate in, in Chinese. Oh. And I had studied in China. Mm-hmm. I was actually did a semester abroad at Hangzhou University. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated, I taught in Hangzhou for a year. And so I was very interested in the Chinese world. Mm-hmm. And I did my MA thesis. I spent three months in a monastery wow. in Zhejiang province of China. Huh. And... So I wanted to do my PhD. And so basically what happened was uh, that monastery in Zhejiang that I did, they were getting all of their money from the leather tanning industry that was Mm -hmm. around them. Mm -hmm. So we set up a study where I would study the leather tanning industry in southern Zhejiang province. Mm -hmm. And then China changed their policy of uh, for foreigners going to do PhD research. Mm -hmm. And where it used to be free, to have, as long as you could get an invitation from a local university, the new policy was that you had to pay very expensive tuition fees. And I couldn't afford it with my grant. Wow. And so I just happened to meet a professor from Taiwan, and I was disappointed. I said, I'm going to have to give up my PhD. He said, no, you just come to Taiwan. (laughs) And back then, uh, TICRO, the Taiwan office was called TICRO back then. They had an Mm -hmm. office in Montreal. Uh-huh. with a library. Uh-huh. So I thought, I'll go to the library and see if Taiwan also has a leather tanning industry. Uh-huh. And I found out it's the second largest leather tanning industry in Asia, oh. second only to Korea. Huh. And so basically I went to my, my draft of my proposal. I just changed the word Zhejiang to Taiwan <laughs> and, then, and then moved to Tainan where the leather tanning industry is biggest. And, uh, and did a, my PhD thesis on leather tanning in China. Oh, okay. I didn't know that background. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> Things yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, it's kind of funny yeah. because I was interested in, my topic was the influence of Chinese culture on industrialization. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I went to visit these leather tanneries. Right. And the bond, I wanted to interview the owners, and the owners would say to me, well, you're getting a degree in anthropology. What does that have to do with me and my factory? And I said, well, I'm interested in the impact of Chinese culture on industrialization, but factory management, how you run the tannery. And they would just say to me, <laughs> they would speak to me in Taiwanese and say, this is not China. This is yeah. Taiwan. You're in the wrong country. And, <laughs> So I kind of self-adjusted and said I'm interested in Taiwanese culture. Uh-huh. And it kind of made things run a bit more smoothly. But the, the learning experience, and that was the whole point of my second book, uh-huh. is that because of the people they meet in their daily life, the people in Taiwan don't feel like they're Chinese at all. Right. All right. What's the, what's the title of your second book? 
that you just referred it's called, to? It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's called Tanners of Taiwan. Oh, okay. And it's basically about that. It's really a complicated issue because Taiwan has been colonized by so many different people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the Japanese came in 1895 and there was mm-hmm. a lot of violence in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then they had to use the education to convince people to be Japanese. Mm-hmm. And then after people got used to being Japanese, the Republic of China came and there was yep. a lot of violence in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then they used the education system to try to convince everybody mm-hmm. to become Chinese. Mm-hmm. But through all of that, being forced to be Japanese and then being forced to be Chinese, but then still speaking something at home called Taiwanese, people really developed over time stronger and stronger identity of being neither Japanese nor Chinese, but of being Taiwanese. Um, Okay, so going back to your um, work and research, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what your work and research entails, like what are you focusing on these days? Well, like I said, I started by doing economic development. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the flip side of economic development, there was when I, you know, like I went into a, a church in a, in a community in Hualien, and mm-hmm. I spoke to an, a woman there, an older woman. I said, I'm doing research on indigenous peoples and economic development. And she said, I hate economic development because really <laughs> it's, all, it's all about destroying the environment. Mm-hmm. And that is the flip side of it. Mm-hmm. Every time you get development, like you build a cement factory in Hawaiian, you're destroying the forests, Mm -hmm. right? And the mountains, you're digging Mm -hmm. up the mountains. Mm -hmm. And so I had these uh, indigenous hunters taking me into the forest with them. And they really hate the Taroko National Park because they get arrested for hunting and trapping there. Mm -hmm. And they started to teach me about the animals. And they started to teach me about how they can observe the behavior of birds to know where they're going to find animals to hunt and trap. Hmm. And so I started getting interested in this whole network of intertangled lives in the forest. Cause these hunters are really have an intimate relationship with dogs that they go uh-huh. hunting with uh-huh. and the birds that they can watch to know where the animals are, but then also the flying squirrels and the wild boars and the munchaks that they not only hunt, but they observe them and they learn about their behavior mm-hmm. and things like when they're likely to have to be pregnant because it's against their, their, their law of Gaia to take a pregnant animal. And there's mm-hmm. just such an intimate knowledge that after that project concluded, I decided to get funding to do a project on this ecological knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that one I find is really tougher to explain to non-indigenous people sometimes. Yeah. Because so many people are alienated from that world of the forest. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And yeah. so urban people don't know about that. And yeah, like, people are very disconnected from nature. Yeah. And so I think it's important to kind of reconnect people with nature by telling stories about these indigenous people. And then, so I started that for a few years. And then I wanted to get a bigger project that I can actually get my grad students involved in. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, why not? Since, you know, about 4,000 years ago, there were people who left Taiwan by boat. They're called Austronesian peoples. All the people on Taiwan, they speak Austronesian languages. And, and people throughout the Pacific speak Austronesian languages because about 4,000 years ago, some people left Taiwan on boats and they started to colonize the Pacific Ocean. 
Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, why don't I go and have students go as well and other professors and to different parts of the Pacific where there are Austronesian peoples mm-hmm. and then do similar research on their entanglements with other living creatures, so mm-hmm. ecology. Mm-hmm. And so that's what basically took me to Guam in January. And other other people have done research. My grad student was in Guam before me. Uh-huh. There's a professor and his students who work in the Batanis Islands of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year, I did research with a grad student on Orchid Island, which belongs mm-hmm. to Taiwan, mm-hmm. but it's closely related culturally and linguistically to the Batanis Islands of mm-hmm. the Philippines. Mm-hmm. I kind of like to say that Orchid Island is between Taiwan and the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And... So we just kind of started that. We're in the third year of a five-year project, but of course it all came to a halt because of COVID-19. Yeah. So is this research, has it been established that there is a common root for these uh, Austronesian people, or is your research contributing to that? Well, it's not really contributing to that. It's kind of the the justification for Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I see plenty of evidence that. I went to Orkin Island. And then we went to Guam. And mm-hmm. in the two, the two months when I was on Guam, I was taking the lessons in Chamorro. The, that the, the native people there are called Chamorro. I was taking classes in their language. And I was really enjoying it because there were some similarities with the Drugu language that I had learned on Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And also, even more notably, with the, the Tao language of Orchid Island. And, you know, I was taking this course, and the other students were Chamorro students who'd grown up hearing the language at home mm-hmm. but grew up speaking English because their grandparents mm-hmm. didn't really like to speak it to them and yet there were some things that I, I was had already mastered because of my studies of other Austronesian languages mm-hmm. in Taiwan mm-hmm. and you know like some of the grammatical things but even some of the words mm-hmm. and so I found that very interesting uh, that's fascinating I think a lot of people uh, may not know about this connection between Taiwan and other Austronesian cultures. Yeah, I think it's probably one of the most important contributions of the research, even if I don't say it so explicitly all the time, is what it does is it reframes Taiwan. Almost everybody thinks about Taiwan as related to China. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to look at Taiwan as a Pacific Island nation, which is also what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's connected to these places like the Guam and the Mariana Islands and the Carolina Islands and to Palau. And those are just the first ones. It goes all the way to the Maori of New Zealand. It goes all the mm-hmm. way to Easter Island. Mm-hmm. But Taiwan is the cradle of that. And mm-hmm. these people across the Pacific, they all seem to know that. Because mm-hmm. I tell them I did research in Taiwan. And the first thing they say is our ancestors came from Taiwan. Wow. So they know that. Wow. And yeah, it's great being, it was great being with Chamorro people because I say Taiwan and it really evokes a response from them, a very positive one. They, they see that as their homeland. Wow, that's fascinating. I have been to Palau. I haven't been to Guam, but yeah, very interesting. And when I did travel through parts of Southeast Asia, I did see some similarities in the culture. So I don't know what's going to happen next because yeah. I was supposed to go to Palau and obviously mm-hmm. I'm not going to Palau in yeah. May. Yeah. And 
So I think the best thing I can do is kind of maybe next year I get a year of a sabbatical. I was mm-hmm. planning on spending a year in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And maybe do, instead of that, do eight months in Taiwan and then four months to wrap up my work in Guam. Wow. And do some other visits to neighboring islands and go to Palau. I really want to spend some time in, especially the island of Rota, which is, it's called Luta in their language. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just the island north of Guam, but people still speak Chamorro there. Oh. And there are still birds there because the birds, the uh-huh. birds on Guam were eaten up by, uh, were, of course, there are still birds there, but they decimated certain species because oh. the military accidentally mm. brought in some tree snakes from the Solomon. Oh, my goodness. And so they're trying to get rid of the snakes, but some mm. of the birds have gone extinct. Yeah. And, and then the birds on Rota are still there. Uh-huh. And so I kind of wanted to go and see what what Guam was kind of like, you know, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's high on my list, but I I guess that has to wait a year or so. Yeah, yeah. I hope that you can, yeah, that you'll be able to make it there. Yeah, it's unsure because everything's up in the air. Yeah. So what resources or books would you recommend for people who want to – read up on or start learning a little bit more about Taiwan's indigenous peoples. Do you have any recommendations? Well, you know, the, the, it's kind of <laughs> tough because there, there really, there really aren't that many books oh. about Taiwan's indigenous peoples. Okay. There, there is my own, but because we teach it French at the University of Ottawa, I wrote uh-huh. it in French. I don't think oh. that's very accessible to most of your listeners. <laughs> I guess there's one by uh, Josiane Coquelin. She wrote something that's called like Headhunters in the Modern World. Uh-huh. And so she did an ethnography of the Puyuma people. And uh-huh. I think that's probably a good ethnography. The mm-hmm. best you're going to get in English. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a bit dated because things have changed politically. Sure. So sure. And I think the most interesting part of it is actually the, the political status that they've acquired in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. There's some journal articles and chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess the best thing to do is just Google it. And if one yeah. Googles my name, they'll come up with a lot. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit more about the political status that you just alluded to? Yeah, what it is basically is that I don't know if Taiwan knew what they were getting into or not from the government <laughs> side. But the decision to say that, that these people are, are, are indigenous rather than ethnic minorities, which is what China's decided that their smaller groups are. It's a, it's a really important distinction because in international law, indigenous peoples have inherent sovereignty. Uh-huh. And so basically it's a recognition, which is absolutely true in Taiwan's case, mm-hmm. that the state came from somewhere else mm-hmm. and that the majority people are settlers who came from other parts of the world by boat, which is exactly what happened because they came from China by boat to get to Taiwan. Right. And so it's very similar to the Europeans who colonized North and South America and Australia and New Zealand and islands of the Philippines and Hokkaido. Um, but indigenous means that they have a right under international law to inherent sovereignty and to land. So that's the usually the minority and the indigenous. Like the, the Hakka in Taiwan are a minority. Mm-hmm. So then I'm interested, you probably know this, like how many other nations have a policy like that, that where they recognize their indigenous peoples? Well, the internationally, there's the, the United Nations has the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. that passed the General Assembly in 2007. Mm-hmm. And 
One of the basic principles of that is that the indigenous peoples have the right to decide for themselves if they're indigenous or not. Right. And that's important. But in terms of states recognizing the existence of indigenous peoples on their territory, in East Asia, there are only three. Japan, the Republic of China, on Taiwan, and the Philippines. So That's in Asia, but the rest of the world, do you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, the rest of the year, the world, it's like, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, mm-hmm. North and South America. But it, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really delicate question, even right. for the people involved. So, you know, for example, the, the Uyghur Association in Washington, D.C. a few years ago issued a report saying that they are indigenous peoples of China, and it really angered China. And so they, they, that group of Uyghurs decided that they are indigenous. Mm-hmm. But other group of Uyghurs, I think, would not necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. Because when you say you're indigenous, you're saying you have inherent sovereignty and the right to mm-hmm. land, but you're also mm-hmm. saying that you accept that you are in a relationship to that state, the, mm-hmm. the external state. Mm-hmm. So it's basically saying we don't want to be an independent Turkestan anymore. We're willing to mm-hmm. be indigenous people of China. That's a big right, right. statement, right? Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. the Tibetans have insisted that they are not indigenous, they're Tibetans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Palestinians are not going to say they're indigenous peoples of Israel. Mm-hmm. They want their own state. So, you know, that's why the Hawaiians are ambivalent about if they're indigenous or not. That's why on Guam, it's a big issue for the Tamoro people if they are indigenous or not. From their perspective, when you say you're indigenous, you're indigenous to, it's a relationship with a state, right? Right, right. And so it kind of excludes independent statehood. Yeah, the very interesting points that you bring up. Any closing thoughts or things you'd like to share about your research and your work? Well, there's just so much to say. I'm sure. (laughs) I tried my best to ask interesting questions. Yeah, I think that there are really two, two big themes that go across my work recently Uh Uh, and the first thing I think is indigenous rights that there are these people who because of their the fact that they already had very effective social and political systems on territories that they managed on their own and then these foreign states came in and basically tried to conquer them but they are still there and they are still resilient and that's inspiring. So mm-hmm. I think the first theme is indigenous rights mm-hmm. and really recognize the continuing existence of these peoples with their own political and social and economic philosophies and ways of living in the world. Mm-hmm. And I want the world to know about that. It's number, number one. Mm-hmm. And then number two is because of what they've taught me, I've become much more aware about our links with other animals. Mm-hmm. And so I would hope that my research also can, in some of the things that I write, get people interested in other animals and with the, the birds and the plants and the fish and all the other wonderful lives that we're surrounding with and to realize that we're all interconnected and we have to really treasure and nourish this world that we live in in relationship with others, human mm-hmm. and non-human. Mm-hmm. But I think that ecology is really the second theme of my work mm-hmm. and that's an emerging theme. Uh, thank you for sharing all that. I look forward to seeing where you go with all your research and hopefully you've given my listeners something to think about. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Talking Taiwan podcast. Okay, thank you, Felicia. At the time of this interview with Professor Scott Simon, he had relocated to Taiwan after having to abruptly halt his field research in Guam due to COVID-19. 
We will include a link to an article you wrote about this experience on our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. He has safely returned to Canada since then. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.